This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings engaging video and audio lectures presented by top professors and professionals on a wide variety of subjects to your fingertips. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to $90 off the original price of four courses within the Everyday Gourmet series of instructional cooking courses. Choose from Essential Secrets of Spices and Cooking, Making Healthy Food Taste Great, Baking Pastries and Desserts, or Making Great Meals in less time for only $9.95. This great price of $9.95 is only available for a limited time, so order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us is Jonathan V. Last. Jonathan had some terrific commentary in the moments after the CNBC debate, a.k.a. the journalistic fiasco or the first ever debate hosted by local cable access television. So I dragged Jonathan into the studio for the podcast. Jonathan, welcome. Michael, you had the best line on this. It was a train wreck into a dumpster fire, <laughs> as you said. It was perfect. What went wrong? This is what I keep asking people in your in the business of journalism. Was this just horrible management? In other words, CNBC just screwed up. My theory is, remember the old R Gang comedies when uh, uh, Spanky and Stymie would put on a play and they'd have like the dogs involved and ropes and pillars and stuff? I think that's what it was. Other people say, no, no, no. This was finally the liberal media able to show its pure, unbridled bias for the world to see. Yeah, but you know, it was it was bias mixed with unpleasantness and then all marinated in incompetence. <laughs> and I I'd say I find the incompetence like the most offensive as a journalist. Like, you know, like everybody has bias, that's fine. Uh, not everybody is nice and friendly and cuddly, that's fine too. But when you can't even like get the the planes stacked up in order on the runway to get your questions out the door like in the right way, and you have the moderators talking over each other. And for me, like the, the moment of pure journalism malpractice was at the very end when and Donald Trump gives his closing statement and says, look how I manhandled these pinheads and got them to turn it from three hours into two hours. And John Harwood interrupts his closing statement to object, which, by the way, you just can't do. Like this is, you know, like if you were to even in the court of law, you sure. don't get the, the opposing counsel doesn't get to you know object to your closing statements. And he int- objects to a closing statement and introduces a factual error mm-hmm. by saying this is just not true. Uh, it was always supposed to be two hours. That is absolutely falsifiable. It is not true. And to be honest, like that more than anything else in the night, I look at that and I think, how is this guy not going to be disciplined tomorrow? Like, you, you, I mean, that really is just pure malpractice. It's one thing to like lose your notes and not know where you got a statistic from in the middle of questioning. Like, that's fine, I guess. Like, it's good reporters and good journalists don't have it happen to them, but you know, like it happens. Right. Yeah. To, to to come in and parachute in to interrupt a closing statement with a factual error is just stunning. It really was, and there were fact errors throughout uh, the percentage of votes Marco Rubio had missed, the impact of Marco Rubio's tax plan. Uh, there, there, it was riddled with fact errors. Uh, and I'm with you. That's what bothers me most is the uh, the anti-journalism of it. It's not the pro-advocacy journalism part. We know that the question is going to be biased. We know the, not, it's not a level playing field. But the incompetence of it. And uh, so that was the, the, the arena in which they were forced to play. How did the game go? I'm, I'm getting an interesting level of feedback that Republicans are pretty happy about this because the media was so awful. 
The Republicans feel like their candidates were able to take advantage of the situation. Do you agree? And who did well and who struggled? Yeah, I mean, one of the theories I've had actually about this election is that Republican voters this year are interested in somebody who is more pugnacious than they normally like. Uh, you know, if you look at the people who win, you know, Mitt Romney, John McCain, Republican voters tend to finally settle on somebody who basically is nice and kind of safe. You know, a guy like Bob Dole is not going to make any waves, or George Bush, or you know, the, the original W. Why Bush are you was, reminding me of these mediocre presidential Right, well, this is what I'm saying. They like. I, I mean, it's not fair to say milk toast, but these are people who are not like looking to make enemies. Right. Uh, and I would say that this year, the, a lot of the candidates who are doing well are people who are really happy and eager to make enemies. And part of that may be just a response to the Obama era. You know, I mean, one of the things you could say about Obama, I think, is that he has been a transformative, transformative president because he's been happy to make enemies, happy to be totally divisive, and happy to go out and die on every single hill and fight every single fight. Uh, I think that Republican voters probably respect that in some way and see that they would like to have some sort of analog. And this is why Donald Trump, who's pretty pugnacious, Ted Cruz, who's pretty pugnacious, wind up being very attractive. And in a setting like last night, everybody gets to take on that role, basically. Uh, and when they do, I actually think that's good for them. I think voters are going to like that. Uh, it's one of the reasons I think Chris Christie shined so much last night as well. I, I think they did. And, you know, you look at that era of kind of the, what was it that President uh, Obama said? We won. You know, that kind of finger approach to uh, <laughs> politics. The guy who's clearly not in that mold is Jeb Bush. And you were the first person I saw at the Weekly Standard website, which is why everyone should check the blog regularly uh, to say, stick a fork in him. Jeb's done. Yeah, it's over, right? I mean, I mean, this is, I really, uh, I don't think this was the moment that caused the, you know, collapse of the Jeb campaign. This was a campaign that was already in slow motion collapse, but it was probably the the, the coup de grace. And, uh, or if you want to be less fancy, do you remember, are you a boxing guy, Michael, the, the great famous Oscar de la Hoya, Bernard Hopkins fight? Alas, no. Uh, so Bernard Hopkins hits De La Hoya and it is a one-shot body shot knockout. This right. is like one of the rare, this is like an inside the park home run. It's sure. an incredibly rare occurrence. And that is what the Rubio move was like last night. And it's actually, I bear no ill will towards Jeb Bush. I think he's not a great politician, not a great candidate. He probably should not be president, but he seems like a perfectly nice guy. Yep. Um, when you watch, I would say, that replay again with Rubio, it's actually a little hard to watch the second and third time once you know what's coming, uh, because Rubio handles him so dismissively. He is so alpha in that moment, uh, and he does it without a whole lot of you know superficial aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the reasons I think Rubio is so formidable. If I were Hillary Clinton watching last night, I would be scared to death about being up on a stage against Marco Rubio. I agree with that. And then the, uh, the frustration I have is that from the beginning of the cycle, I've been saying to my listeners and to readers, et cetera, let's have a campaign. Let's don't decide early on where we're going to go. Let's let these guys and gals fight and see who rises. And I was hopeful that you would see people rise. And I think you can say they have. I think uh, Rubio, the obvious choice. I think Carla Fiorina, I'm stunned at how good she is. Don't know that she should be the nominee, but boy, she's better than you'd expect. And Ted Cruz is very good good at debating and at you know working the stumps. You've got these three people who have skills and they're in the game. 
And yet the feedback I still get is, no, I, ref- I don't want to vote for somebody who's good at this. I want to vote for somebody who's going to blow it up or who's angry or who's just, you know, a, 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 a vote that, has, that it seems to be disconnected from beating Hillary Clinton. Is this a permanent feature of the campaign or is the focus going to turn more towards Hillary as it comes time to actually caucus or vote? I suspect the latter, but I don't know. I mean, look, whenever somebody says this time it's different, uh, well, eventually sometime it will be different, but the chances are always that this time is not that time. Uh, I I basically believe the Stu Stevens appraisal of this, which is that if Trump is going to be the nominee, it means that everything we know about modern politics is wrong. (laughs) And... But that's not to say that it couldn't happen. I mean, maybe things are really wrong. Maybe the Obama era has been so dislo- dislocative that it really has broken things apart. Uh, I'm open to that possibility. But I would also say, frankly, in Trump's defense, he is if you watch him, he's been getting better on the stump over the last couple of months. And he clearly is getting better in the debates as well. Uh, his aggression has been ratcheted down a little bit. He was slightly more disciplined, but without losing any of his sort of Trumpian charm. Uh, and if you look at what he did to John Kasich, he turned Kasich inside out last night. Now, I understand Kasich is low in the polls, but Kasich is a combative guy right. who spent years of his life on television and has spent decades of his life in politics. He is This is not his first rodeo. He's been around the block before. And Trump turned him inside out to the point where Kasich had to defend himself by saying, but I was a banker and I'm proud of being a <laughs> banker. And you know what? You Even in a Republican primary, when you have to defend yourself by just saying, I was just a banker, you have lost. Uh, and Trump did that pretty, pretty easily, pretty cannily. Uh, I, I think Trump is actually... I can't believe I'm saying this. I, I think Trump is a little bit more formidable than a lot of people were were willing to admit. I think he's growing more formidable. I would still put his odds of being the nominee very, very low. Uh, but I would say they they don't approach zero, which is what I used to think. I used to think that his odds approach zero. I would say they're, they're probably non-zero uh, and maybe even significantly non-zero at well, this point. I, I never miss the opportunity to say something negative about Donald Trump, but, but I'm going to pass this time because I think that he brings up a, a part of the dynamic that we saw at work again last night. And there are a group of Republicans who feel, and I think rightly so, that nobody's playing by the rules. I think the phrase play by the rules may be the most resonant phrase in conservative politics right now, because if you look at the people, President Obama and the Democrats in Congress and the way they skirted the rules to shove down Obamacare and other things, the way they've ignored the law on uh, immigration, on immigration itself, the problem with illegal immigrants, you know, uh, uh, people want to say it's because Republicans hate, you know, brown people. That's not the case. They hate cheaters. They hate people. You know, one guy stands in line to get here from Dominican Republican. Another guy just cheats and gets in. And I think you see a dynamic where people are saying, look, if the Democrats aren't going to play by the rules and the press, as we saw in the CNBC debate, clearly not going to play by any notion of journalistic ethics, no sense that there has to be a self-limiting barrier of truth or fealty to facts. Why should we? Why not send in a Donald Trump who will say and do anything, just start swinging his cudgel around, (laughs) taking out our enemies? We need our Conan the Barbarian to face the barbarians of the left and the press. Trumpzilla, right? Yes, yes. Trumpzilla. Yeah, I think there's probably something to that. Again, I think my own suspicion is that as we get closer to voting, people will get a little bit more uh, politically canny. They will think, especially since Joe Biden's not in the race, uh, Mm. we really, I think, can basically assume with 95% confidence that Hillary Clinton's going to be the nominee. And as you see, you know, I would say 
I actually thought the big winner of the Democratic debate was Marco Rubio because we saw that Hillary Clinton is not as bad as her Saturday Night Live caricature. She's, you know, she's not a great debater, but she's reasonably formidable. She's serious. She's disciplined. Uh, she can be kind of tough. Uh, you don't just want to roll the dice, I think, with somebody who is a basically untested political commodity. I think it, again, it argues for somebody like a Ted Cruz or somebody like a Marco Rubio, which is to say a more traditional political figure and not you know, some guy who is basically brand new on the scene. Jonathan Last, thanks so much for joining us. I know you have a lot more time now because you've been disabided from so many cocktail parties and barbecues now that you've announced that Jeb Bush is out of the race. You've lost your elitist establishment card. So we look forward to see you down at the CD bar where the rest of us hang out. Uh, I'll be in a van down by the river. <laughs> You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.